As you remain standing as you are, we will open our text to the book of Matthew, the 26th chapter, as we continue now the narrative of the discourse of the Gospel of Matthew. I'd also like for you uh, to ask of you to put your finger in Mark 14 and also in John chapter 12. We're going to read all three of the passages of which this particular narrative now expounds, because each of these three Gospels which records this particular event adds details that will help us flesh out the fullness of what is going on here. As I'm going through the liturgy myself, the Lord is opening my eyes to little things. Uh, For those of you in my uh, Tuesday evening class, uh, perhaps maybe you're seeing a particular epistemology Uh, that begins to express itself as well. And it's an epistemology through the eyes of faith which gives us understanding. As the philosophers through all of history have tried to understand how do we know what is true and real. And there has been many movements through the age of history that have come to that conclusion all to be crumbled and and to another theory that begins to surface in its place. And, And yet, as I read even in the opening of the passage today about faith, it's the substance of the things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It is faith with which we have eyes to see true reality. It is through faith we understand that the worlds which were framed by the word of God so that the things which are not seen were made known by the things which do not appear, or the things which are seen are made known by the things which do not appear. Uh, That's just going to ruin the empiricist. Uh, The rationalist will not find any uh, answers there. It is only the Christian worldview that is the only consistent worldview that can stand up to the test of scrutiny. As we consider now that theme before us, faith, let us now turn in our attention to our hearts, uh, with our hearts, to the text before us, and with eyes of faith now, let us hear them. Beginning at verse 1 in Matthew 26, now hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, A woman came to him, having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, He said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. 
For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told her, told as a memorial to her. Now I'm going to Matthew, or Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After two days it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in this whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And now over in the gospel of John, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil, spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then he said, and this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Our gracious Father, as we come to this, your word today, Open up the eyes of our heart that we may see and understand what is true. And when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And we ask that you would free us this day, each one of us and us as a whole, that we might serve the Lord Jesus with greater freedom and expression, that if there is one here today that does not know you personally, that you would open up their eyes of the heart, that they can see, and that they can believe, and they can understand. 
We pray that the Spirit of God would strengthen us all in our faith and teach us the way of life. And we pray that your Spirit would apply these truths in ways that only you can through the preaching of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. For those of you who may have had the opportunity to visit Washington, D.C., some of you live very close by there at one point, um, you might notice that it's filled with memorials. I've had a couple of opportunities to visit the city myself. Uh, most notable memorial is one that stands 555 feet, made of marble, which is called the Washington Monument. It was built over 50 years before it actually could be opened to the public, and it stands there in Washington, D.C. as a memorial to George Washington, who many would consider as the father of our nation. There's also the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Franklin D. Roosevelt Memorial. There's a bunch of memorials in the city. And as you consider the significance of the person of which the memorial or the monument is memorializing, usually the more significant the person, the more honor is paid and the more expensive or lavish the monument. In our passage this morning, we find a memorial of a woman that Matthew doesn't even name in his gospel, but yet because of her faith and what she did through her faith, Jesus memorialized her in the scriptures, and we are living today, even right now, in this memory of the tremendous act of faith that Mary of Bethany did. This morning I want to preach to you on just a very simple concept that our humble faith will be rewarded by God. It's not about making a name for yourself. That was the focus of the envy and the pride of which the religious leaders of Israel were focused. They were moved in their spirit against Jesus because of the envy that they had for him, and they were leading the crowds away from themselves, and, and people were following Jesus, and, and that was taking their status away. It's not about money or the things that money can buy or, or the cares of this world. It's those very things that choke out the fruitfulness of true life. It's that which Judas was after, the cares of the world. But God called each one of us to live humble lives, simple lives in that respect, lives that are faithful to him, and even doing the little things day by day in the mundaneness of everyday life, in living faithfully to him, that is the life that will be rewarded. And this is what the woman did. She was living faithfully. And even when it drew the criticism from Jesus' own disciples, Jesus stepped in and defended her and memorialized her forever in the Holy Scriptures. The Washington Monument's been around for just a little over 100 years. This has been around for over 2,000, and some of it far longer than that. Only a few will know about the Washington Monument and other massive monuments, but... 
millions upon millions, and who knows how many angels know about this woman. That's what Jesus did. He humbles those who honor him, or he, he honors those who are humbled to come to honor him. It's the acts of faith, whether they be simple acts of faith or whether they be lavish acts that faith has moved us to do. It is that which Jesus will reward. And as we see this particular narrative nestled in this particular aspect of of this passion narrative, the focus here that Matthew gives us is on the characters not necessarily the, the plot that's about to unfold. And so we draw our attention to the characters. A few points to consider as we then now have looked at three of the particular Gospels that reveal this particular event. Now, not to be confused with, with another one that's very close to some of the similarities of this one, but it's quite a different event that Luke records for us. That happened at another Simon's house, but not Simon the leper, Simon uh, a Pharisee. It was a different time, it was a different context, it was a different place, it was different people, although there were a few points of similarity. And so that account in Luke is not to be confused with the one that Matthew, Mark, and John give us. John's gospel said that this event happened six days before Passover. And you might have read in Matthew and and Mark, it was two days before the Passover, but it wasn't the event that Jesus was at in the house of this in Bethany. It was two days before the Passover in which the scribes and the Pharisees had made this plot to kill Jesus. And so Mark and Matthew are not following the chronological order that John is, But they're following a theological order in order to help us to see the characters in juxtaposition with one another. So the event that happens here in the the house of Simon the leper in Bethany was six days before Passover. As we consider uh, John, who is concerned with the chronological order of this event, Matthew, the theological order, John places this narrative in such a way that it's going to highlight exactly what Jesus did in John chapter 13 when the passage begins when Jesus in the upper room took a towel and began to wash his disciples' feet, highlighting the very fact of what Mary did to Jesus days before. So what Matthew is doing in his gospel, however, is he's drawing a a contrast of what Mary's action has done, and Matthew doesn't name her, but John does, and that's why we went there. Drawing a contrast with, with her and her actions and her faith over against the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders of Israel, which actually represented the entirety of the corporate nation, over against Judas Iscariot, who was one of Jesus' twelve, and even against the criticism of which drew from his disciples against her. And it's against all of that backdrop that then this beautiful act of faith and lavish gift then takes place of which Jesus steps in 
to vindicate her for both her faith and her actions. So as we begin to pull from all three of these accounts, I'd like to, to go through and just reveal what happened and, and pull all of the details together in one place. Jesus is at Bethany. Bethany is a little town about uh, two miles southeast of Jerusalem. So it was in a very easy and comfortable walk to Jerusalem where all the events were going on of that week. The town would be swelling to beyond its borders on this occasion of the Passover. This was one of those annual festivals and feasts and, and likely the largest in, of, the, of the three, uh, which women and children were more than welcome to attend, but all the males 20 years and older were required to it was a festival time and, and a joyful time, and, and here was the swelling of this city, and Jesus found his refuge and probably his stay down in Bethany at a place that he was not unfamiliar with. Bethany was also the hometown of Mary, in which we reference Mary of Bethany, and Martha and Lazarus. These were three siblings. Not to be confused with Mary Magdalene, which some people do draw that connection with. And here they are eating supper, not an uncommon occasion where we find Jesus unfolding the scriptures. Lazarus is sitting with Jesus at the table. Martha is busy serving, as we might expect. And Mary is there with this costly alabaster flask of pure nard, which we'll get to in a moment. They are in Simon the leper's house, which has brought some question and conjecture of who this Simon the leper is. Some might even conjecture it was Lazarus, but being used of a middle name there. Certainly the leper by now has been healed, or he would not have been exposed in this particular setting. Others think that Simon the leper was probably the father of the three siblings that we know more familiar, because it seems to be that it is their home or someplace they're very comfortable with. Martha is preparing the meal, Mary is doing her thing at the feet of Jesus, and Lazarus sitting at the table. All the siblings are there. And so the focus of the narrative revolves around Mary who Matthew leaves unnamed. Mary's theological, or Matthew's theological connection juxtaposes uh, Mary's action against the plot of the Jews that just took place, at least in his narrative, but actually happened a couple of days later. And that's why I think Matthew is juxtaposing those two events, even though they are a little discontinuous in our chronological history. Because he's drawing attention to the contrast that's going on. Matthew, in his first five verses, Jesus is informing what is about to happen. And then it shows where the religious leaders went about and plotted how they might kill him. And the logistics began to take place. Jesus knew his time was come to die. And he would be turned over to the high priest and to the elders and to the chief priests. He would die at their hands. The plotting was already fixed. The logistics now had to be figured out. 
But it's on the heels of that context that Mary now places, or Matthew places Mary's anointing. And so here they are gathered around the table to eat supper, and Matthew relates this action of a woman that drew the focus. As we saw, John identifies her as Mary of Bethany. And Mary takes an alabaster, an alabaster flask a very expensive nard from the spikenard, and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. Matthew records head, John records feet. Now, this oil that is considered to be pure nard was essentially an essential oil from the spikenard plant, and it came from India. And so it traveled miles to get to where it was. It was very fragrant and aromatic, and it was normally contained, or at least in this case, the amount of that oil was contained in an alabaster flask and sealed at the top so that the way to open that flask was to break its neck and then to pour it out. Alabaster is a a beautiful stone that's very porous and often translucent. I had an opportunity with mom a few years back to go visit Volterra, Italy, which is the alabaster capital of the world, or so I was told. And there we could see these beautiful structures or these carved, hand-carved sculptures of alabaster. Uh, They made all kinds of things with this incredible stone. Because of its translucent quality, light would shine through it. It's not uncommon to see lampshades made out of alabaster. We saw entire lamps that stood five feet high that, that were illuminated inside, and you could see the light coming out. Beautiful stone. It's typically white, sometimes on the brown side. But the kind of flask that is described in holding this nard is still, even today I'm told, available in, in, in Jerusalem and Palestine, and it has this round and skinny neck that could easily be broken. It's a fragile rock, easily malleable for sculpturing. And so as we have this scene before us unfold, and Mary takes this ointment breaks this expensive basin of itself and then pours out the expensive perfume, Mark informs us that the amount of the the nard of this very fragrant aromatic perfume would have been somewhere around 300 denarii worth of money, which would have been equivalent to an entire annual wage of a common worker of that time. Now think about it. Take whatever you make in an entire year, and you've got that in a perfume, and now you're going to expend all of that all at once on this common setting, in that particular setting, I should say. That's a lot of money worth of perfume. That's a lot of value. There's a lot of things you could do with that. We don't know really where she got it. It could have been her inheritance. It could have been her entire life savings. But the one thing we do know of, it was worth so much that it stirred up the disciples. 
What Mary did with this oil is she poured it out on Jesus and pulling the the facts together from all of the accounts, it would have not just been in one place. Yes, she poured it on his head, which would have been a type of anointing, but she also poured it on his feet, as John tells us, wiping his feet with her hair, like, like a foot washing that only a servant would be expected to do. And that which John would then take into the next chapter, and I think that's why John focuses on the feet, because he's going to bring that into the narrative of the upper room discourse with Jesus and his disciples that would happen in a very short amount of time. There's a connection. There's these narrative arcs. And John's narrative arc wants us to focus on one aspect, and Matthew wants us to focus on another aspect, but they are all part of one narrative. The house fills with the the fragrant aroma, as one might expect. And what's notable is she not only then washes Jesus' feet with this fragrant, expensive perfume, but she takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Her hair. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman's hair is her glory. And here she is with her glory, the glorious thing that she has as part of who she is as a woman. She is now wiping the feet of Jesus. You might remember Mary. This was not the first time that she was faulted for her actions or inaction. Remember Martha's sister complained to Jesus about Mary because Mary was not serving with Martha and being busy about the work of the house and being of the hostess at the time. Luke records that event in chapter 10. And she, Martha, had a sister, Mary, that's this Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. I'm going to read that verse one more time because that's the key. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha, who was distracted with much serving, she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. The gentle rebuke and correction to Martha, and the vindication that Jesus steps in and gives to Mary as she sat at Jesus' feet and just hung upon his word. Jesus says she chose the better decision. There are three occasions when we see Mary with Jesus. 
all three of those occasions prior to his crucifixion, we see her at Jesus' feet. When Martha was busy serving and complaining against Mary, where was Mary? At Jesus' feet, hanging on to his words. When Lazarus died and Jesus was on his way, Mary went out to meet Jesus and fell at his feet and wept. And here, in this occasion, six days before Passover, she is now pouring a year's wage earnings worth of fragrant oil on him, specifically on his feet, and wiping his feet with her hair at Jesus' feet. Mary was very familiar with those feet. Each time we see Mary acting, we see Jesus acting in her behalf. With Martha, he gently rebuked Martha, informing her that Mary had chosen the good part. At the time of Lazarus' death, Jesus responded to her weeping, wept with her, and brought Lazarus back from the dead. And here, when she would then pour out all of this sacrificial fragrant oil in an act of faith and with understanding, he would intercede to again vindicate her in the presence of all as he corrected his own disciples and then went on to say, her act of faith will now be a memorial to her every time the gospel is preached. And here we have it this morning. As I am mentioning her by name, as I am calling our attention to these events, she is being remembered. And Jesus made sure that happened. Now, 2,000 years later and continuing. Today, the preaching of this text is doing what Jesus said would happen. But her action incited the criticism of the disciples. We see, first of all, but only from John, where the criticism started. The criticism started with Judas. And he gives an argument that is an argument of pragmatism, if you will. It's a practical argument. He brings it in the form of a question. And he criticizes Mary. And he directs the criticism in the form that he starts as a question against what could have been done with all of this. Could have given it to the poor, could have taken a whole year. How many poor people could have been served and ministered? Doesn't that make a lot of sense, rather than pouring it out upon Jesus? Rather than all this waste, look how much good it could have been. How, how many times have we heard arguments like that? We can always think of things that money can be used for. Help more missionaries, help this project, help the poor, help this and help that. There are more needs than our monies can support. But the problem is, where is our faith to know where it should go? 
That's always the decision at the moment. Well, how will we know? In fact, this criticism that was directed at Mary that started and was instigated by Judas could have had implications to Jesus as well because it was to him that they were looking to correct this problem. But the Bible informs us that Judas's interest, his motives were not genuine. He actually wasn't genuinely interested in the biblical principle that he just cited. He was, in fact, a thief. He had kept the money box for the disciples, and he was the one that brought the criticism because he had done the calculation. He had thought through the issue. He knew how much the perfume could have been sold for, and he was already thinking. But Judas was an unbeliever. He makes an argument, by the way, which is reasonable and it is practical, but it was an argument that was not made in faith. Only faith can lay hold on what is real, what is true, what is right. In fact, there are many reasonable and logical and practical arguments that sound right, but are contrary to what is good and right, contrary to the will of God. There are many that Paul comes right up to the knife edge and then he would then use the logical argument by faith to say, God forbid. For instance, in Romans 6, we have one of those expressions. Where your sin did abound, God's grace did all the more abound. Well, then you might say, if, if God's grace all abounds more than over all my sin... Why don't we just sin more that God's grace may abound more? It was logical. Some might say practical. And he would say, God forbid you think that way. You are actually missing the entirety of the point. And that's basically what is going on here. The gospel and the Bible are certainly practical. There is nothing more practical than the Bible. They are re- it is reasonable and it is logical. There is nothing more cogently consistent than the worldview that the Bible gives. But it is also more than those spheres can offer and account for because it requires faith to understand. Faith is necessary to understand life for knowing the will of God, for knowing the decision of the hour. We walk by faith, not by sight. That means we can't figure it out ahead of time. It means we have to trust the Lord right now. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I had a man one time stop by my office. He was a man in our church who was a very intelligent man up in his 70s at the time. As he would often do, he would stop by as he saw my car and he would come in to converse with me. He was a man who happened to work with Mortimer Adler uh, at the time in which the University of Chicago was removing all of their athletic program from the university to become a, a, a think tank. 
And so underneath the, the football stadium, they then created this think tank of a university, if you will, that went on to change the curriculums and the way that people would, would go to think about these matters. And Mortimer Adler was a leader in that particular time, and this friend who stopped by was a part of that. And he stopped by one time, and he says, Hebrews 11.1, 1, what does it mean? I have no idea. I had conversations with Mortimer Adler over this, and he had no idea. Of course, they're looking at this thing from a, a logical, rational area outside of the realm of faith and grace, and of course, it would be nonsensical. But I dare say everyone has a deep-seated belief and a, and a presupposition, even that they're not conscious about, and they have deeply-seated things that have been inbred in them by things that they were not even aware of. But here is what the Lord Jesus has done. He's opened our hearts with the Spirit of God, and He has given us the understanding of the things which are created are those things that are done by which we cannot see with these eyes. Judas didn't have the heart eyes. He had lived with Jesus and ministered for, for over three years. I don't think he even realized what was going to come about, but he had other motives that John reveals. And through a leading question and through a crafty question, which was not even a sincere and genuine question, though it appears to have logical, practical, out outward implication, he led an argument that even some of the disciples gravitated onto. And so another group of people that we see here are the disciples. In Matthew's gospel, it says the disciples, as though all of them. Mark's gospel says some of the disciples, and John says Judas Iscariot. So what appears to happen is Judas led the argument, and then some, at least some of the disciples, then bought into it. Yeah, yeah, Lord, stop her from doing this. The argument sounds good, it's reasonable. Look how much money is being wasted. We could do so much more with this. And Mary then becomes the criticism by the majority of people now in the room. She was giving a tremendous gift of her heart, of her love, perhaps of her life savings of a great sacrifice, an act of faith to Jesus, only to be criticized by the majority of the people present. And it's at this point that Jesus steps in and he comes to Mary's defense. Now, it wasn't that Jesus didn't care for the poor. He himself grew up in a poor family. He didn't have much. That was evident by the way in which the Two turtle doves were given at the time in which he was taken to the temple when he was born. That was the gift of a poor family. He was more immediately concerned with what the others would not understand, but with what Mary did 
he was about to die, and there was an immediacy of the hour that demanded the act of faith to make the right decision. The leaders had already plotted it out. They already knew what they were going to do. It was just a matter of the logistics of time around the feast to carry it out. In the next scene, we see Judas siding with them. So he was ready to deny Jesus and to betray him, which we will shortly see. Jesus had informed his disciples on several occasions, but particularly just recently from the narrative, at least three different explicit times that he must go to Jerusalem and die at the hand of the people. But the disciples still did not have understanding of that. While 11 of these disciples were true followers, they lacked the understanding that only faith was going to give them. Mary, however, seemed to understand the need of the hour. Mary could see and understand something that the rest of them could not. I remember when I first read this account and I began thinking through this message, I thought, and it was my position originally, that Mary was acting without a genuine understanding, and then Jesus would interpret her actions in light of what he knew was about to happen You're kind of like a a prophecy. But the more I considered the passage, and the commentators seemed to all pile up in agreement, that Mary actually understood what Jesus had taught, what Jesus had said, that he was about to die, and she was responding accordingly by anointing his body for the burial in this quiet act of lavish sacrifice. For that purpose. That took a tremendous act of faith. To pour out all of this. And her understanding. Her sacrifice. Her knowledge of knowing what to do. Directed by faith. Led the events that surrounded this hour. Of which Jesus vindicated her. A decision that otherwise would have been foolish. A decision of which the disciples may have had a good point. And you could almost resignate that you could think that you might have been in that room with the disciples when you had a leading witness, so to speak, kind of directing the course of thought and conversation with his question. You might think, well, yeah, that that does make a lot of sense. And you can't see anything else because you don't understand. Why don't you not understand because you did not have faith? That was the problem with the disciples at this moment. Now, they would, God would strengthen these disciples to go on and do marvelous things. But Peter was going to reject him very shortly. All the disciples were going to flee shortly. They could not even have enough faith to, to watch and pray with Jesus for not even one hour in the garden. But she had this understanding that no one else in the room seemed to have. And she made the right choice, which was an act of faith. The same thing that went on at Jesus' feet when Martha complained. This choice could have been wasteful, but it was not. She chose the good part because she had learned much 
at Jesus' feet. As Jesus vindicated her by bearing the gentle rebuke and correction to the disciples, then he said, I'm going to make this a memorial to her. And that's why we read of this even this day. This act of faith was richly rewarded, of which continues to pay dividends even to our day. What we have in this text is a highlighting of four groups of people. There is a fifth which Lazarus gets to, or John gets to Lazarus there. As Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and people came to see Lazarus because of that, and then the, the, the scribes were going to kill him too. And that's a whole other narrative of John's gospel that we won't get to. But Matthew is highlighting four groups of people. First of all, there is the Jewish leaders representing the nation of Israel as a whole. These were hostile to the gospel. These were hostile to Jesus. They were stirred and motivated by their own pride. They had their own way of thinking about things. They had their own status in life. They had their own way of thinking. They didn't want that to be disturbed. And and they were not about to submit themselves to Jesus. In their minds, he was a threat. It needed to go. It was foolishness. When in reality, he was their Savior and Lord but they would not see it. The world today is hostile against Jesus. And by extension, they're hostile to the church. They think the way that we view things is just foolishness. They look at it in terms of uh, a pragmatism. They don't understand a correct biblical epistemology. They don't understand what truth is. They don't even understand if there is such thing as objective truth. And if there is such thing, they don't know how to get it. And so for us, to us, that they seem that we're just foolish. And our foolishness then keeps getting in their way of their wickedness, of their depravity, of their enmity with God and their utter foolishness. And so they take it out on us and they persecute us. And that will continue, by the way. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. And so that's a group of people that are against God, against Jesus, against His ways of thinking, against what is true, what is right, and that is the way the world is against us today. Unbelievers cannot see nor understand. Then, secondly, there was Judas. Judas was a betrayer. He, he lived and walked with Jesus for over three years. When Jesus empowered the twelve and sent them out with power over unclean spirits and to cast out demons, Judas was among the twelve. He didn't come back to Jesus and say, hey, why couldn't I do this? They all 12 came back and says, look, we were casting out demons and healing people in your name. And Jesus says, don't boast in that. There was a fact that that Judas had a very special privilege. And even though his heart was unregenerate, he did seem to have uh, the power of the Spirit upon him, much like Balaam's donkey did. And so you had this empowering for the time, and that is why those who are in the church, who have been baptized and have been in this close proximity, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have had the empowerment of the Spirit to walk away from the faith and deny those things, how much worse of a punishment will be for that person than even for the Jewish leaders of the day. Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better for that man never to have been born. 
having lived in proximity to him, followed Jesus for years, probably at one time thinking he was genuine, but his heart was never changed. He was never really sincere. He probably didn't know this at first. His heart was on, his own heart deceived him. He thought he was going to go along on this exciting journey, this new ride. But he also had other motives that were not pure, and his heart was never purely clean. It never was changed. In the end, his judgment will be worse than even the Jewish leaders. Then we have the disciples. The disciples, all but one, were true believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Yet they were not yet mature in their understanding. Their faith was weak, and Jesus would often point this out to them. Oh, you of little faith. When they are in the boat and Jesus is sleeping and the storm comes, he rebukes them. Remember that? Uh, when, when they come down from Mount Transfiguration, the disciples were trying to cast out the demon. And they said, Lord, why can we not cast him out? Well, they had done that before. Why can we not cast this one out? Oh, you have little faith. Peter said, not so, Lord. I will die with you. Oh, Peter, you're going to die me three times before the cock crows. Twice. But Jesus loved them. Even in the smallness of their faith, the weakness of their understanding, they're often making the wrong kinds of decisions and even being critical over the right ones, and yet he loved them. They were not yet strong enough to even watch and pray with him for an hour. They were not yet mature enough to cast out the toughest of demons. They did not yet have an understanding of what was about to happen even though Jesus had informed them clearly no less than three explicit times just before this happened. But when one is immature in their faith, they can be vulnerable to be misled by sound and reasonable arguments regarding the will of God, but made by others that are not true. That's why Satan loves to implant tear among the wheat. Because of the misleading of the sheep that can happen within its doors. And such was the fate of youthful disciples being misled by Judas. But then there's Mary. Mary of Bethany was always found at the feet of Jesus. And her faith stands out above the rest. Her perception of the hour was unusual in contrast to everyone else in the narrative. The religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. Mary was preparing him for that. She, believing his word, anointed him believing this was about to happen. The leaders scorned Jesus, but Mary loved him and clung to the words that fell off his lips and deeply believed them. Martha criticized her for not serving and helping when there was work to be done while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus learning of all of these things that would then give her the faith for the hour that is before us now. 
Jesus said, Mary made the better choice. The disciples were about to flee because they could not pray for one hour, but Mary understood the hour and was preparing even Jesus for it. Mary took this costly fragrance, anointed Jesus for his burial. Judas and the disciples criticized her. Jesus vindicated her. So the next time you see a memorial, no matter where or what the memorial is, Consider how long has it been there? To whom is it memorializing? And what was their honor? You can think about Mary now for 2,000 years that Jesus, the Lord of heaven himself, memorialized. What greater honor can one have than that? Oh, that costly perfume of a year's salary that had some practical other uses to it which seems so impractical for the moment, might I ask you today, in the light of what's happened in 2,000 years, how practical really was it for the situation now? Which seemed to be wasted on a moment has now lasted over 2,000 years and counting. How long of a memorial do you think you can build? It is... Faith that acts in sacrifice to our Lord Jesus Christ that he will reward for all of eternity. And what he did for her, he will do for you if you believe and trust him and give your life to follow him. Walking by faith in a mature faith of understanding which only comes at the feet of Jesus and he will richly reward you. Our gracious Father, oh, the, the grace and the love that you show to your humble servants is more than we can think or imagine. It is so lavish. This lavish gift that Mary gave in preparation for Jesus' body, how much more lavish is our Lord who not only provided it to begin with, but who also continues to give so that her cup runneth over. How thankful we are a part of this group of people that Jesus has loved and continues to bless and, and honors those who will honor him. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us all to be humble, to be lavish with our love for you and for one another. And we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith that we can understand each moment of each day the right decision before us and not think in terms of the old man, the old sight, the old flesh, that often gives us practical and logical, reasonable answers, but may not be according to your will. There may be another logical, reasonable answer that only the eyes of faith can discern. Open our eyes that we can see before us and walk in this faith that we might know your will today and be faithful to it today that what tomorrow holds 
you already know and are preparing us for by way of what you do for us as we trust you today. Tomorrow has enough cares and worries for it. Let us seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And Lord, provide for us that which we need. May we cast away all of our fears, our anxieties and our worries to cast ourselves wholly upon the wisdom and the love and the the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the path that he leads us down is a path of righteousness for your name's sake. May we find the peace of God and the comfort of the Spirit each moment of each day resting in the truth here as we walk by faith and not by sight. If there's one here today that does not know his creator, his Lord, the one to whom he will bow knee to one day, we pray, oh God, that you would be merciful and save that soul or souls and that you would be glorified to bring this person or persons to yourself this day through the power of your word and the Holy Spirit and the power of God that cannot be resisted. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen.